why don't we just say this all together? How many do you have? Just through verse four. Nine. Oh, no, no, even more. Wait, we have all the way to 13. All the way to 13, okay, yeah. Well, let's do it all. Let's stand together. Stand together. No, I'm not saying that. Do back and forth. Let's do this side and then that side. You guys. You guys and then you guys, okay? So, number one first. Here, guys. Everyone first. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you everlasting covenant. My steadfast, your love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and my nation because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is here. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Somebody's near the lights, we could turn them on, and then when we're ready to sing, 
we can turn the back off. But I'm going to talk for a few minutes first. Um, it's really been a pleasure to be with you guys. Looks like the rain is going away, so that'll be nice. Um, I, I want to tell you, so maybe some of you know this, um, I've been doing campus ministry at Belmont for 20 years. And um, before that, I went to a place called Berkeley College of Music up in Boston. Um, before that, I grew up in Baltimore, right? And, um, yeah, that's right. And um, so when I, you know, I was involved in various different campus ministries up in, uh, in Boston when I was in college. We didn't have a Christian fellowship um, at the school where I was at. So I went to various different ones. I went to one different thing at Boston University. I went to another one over at MIT. And just kind of anywhere we could find other Christians, you know, we were happy. And I know in the North, you know, that's kind of the reality. You can't be nearly as picky as you can in in Nashville at Belmont, you could go to a good church every single weekend for like four years and never you know, decide where to go, which is its own problem, of course. Um, and uh, I remember at Berkeley, you know, if you saw somebody in the cafeteria on Sunday morning dressed up to go to church, you knew that they were an actual Christian. And um, at Belmont, like people will dress up on Sunday mornings to go to the cafeteria so you think they're going to church, and then they go back to bed. So that's a very different demographic situation. Um, but I, I do, you know, where, when I first, um, you know, came, it was really my senior year in college that I started, like, deciding I needed to figure out what I believed. And I started going around to used bookstores and getting um, books. I had come across this essay somewhere by C.S. Lewis called On the Reading of Old Books. And Lewis said that you should read two old books for every new book you read because it would help you see past your cultural blinders. And um, that sounded like a good idea to me. Plus, I didn't. Um, have very much money, and I could go to all these used bookstores in Boston, and sometimes I found really crazy books. Like, I literally one week would teach everybody, you know, you know, Paul didn't write any of the books that we associate with him. And Glenn Hoberg, who was in the group with me and later went on to start the Army group at Harvard, would be like, Kevin, I don't think that's true. <laughs> you know, he'd call his pastor back home. Then I'd read another book, and the next week I'd be like, okay, that was wrong. You know, I, and so it was all over the map. Um, but I do, you know, believe that God's sheep hear his voice, and, you know, I Take great hope in that. Um, because eventually, after you read enough books, you kind of figure out what's the radical fringe and kind of what's in the mainstream. And um, so I kind of began to settle and begin to understand grace um, a little bit. I came down to Nashville. I started working as a recording engineer in the recording studio down there. And then after doing that for a little while, I had uh, the church I was at decided they wanted to start a college Sunday school class. So I put a little ad in the bulletin. I was like, well, I'd help you know, teach this Bible study up in Boston. I didn't tell them what I've been teaching, but I told them, you know, I've been part of this, and so I'd be willing to help. And um, I really um, enjoyed that, and we were doing that for about a year when RUF came to Vanderbilt. Now, I was at a PCA church, and I had a lot of students from Vanderbilt that were in my college high school class, and I began to hear about RUF. And actually, the first thing I heard was, I quoted from some old book by this guy, J.C. Ryle, a book called Holiness. And when I held it up at, at, in this college Sunday school class, one of the girls, the Vanderbilt girl, said, my RUF campus minister told me to read that book. And I thought, what is RUF? Because if they like that book, that book was huge for me in college when I found it in a used bookstore. I want to know more about this. I started going. And I tell you, the first time I went to an RUF meeting, it just really defied all the stereotypes of what I thought you needed to do to reach college students. Um, they were singing hymns. They were singing scripture songs. And... Um, and then Hal Farnsworth got up and preached like a full-on, like, 40-minute sermon. And there were hundreds of students there. And um, I was like, wow, like, I love this. I want to know more about this. I started hanging out. Now, in RUF in those days, they were doing a few um, hymns with new tunes. 
So when people sometimes think that in Delaware Grace that we started that, we didn't. We picked up on this tradition that was already going on. Some of it was, I think, the fact that we had ordained pastors leading RUF groups um, probably gave us a little more of an impetus to say, what are the songs that we're singing? What are the things that they're building in to our people? Um, uh, but we were also singing some really cheesy songs. Like we would sing um, Psalm 19 to um, this John Denver tune, Andy's song, you know that? You know, Lord, thy word is righteous, and thy word abideth. You know that, you know that you fill up my senses song. So, so, you know, some of the marriages of tunes and um, texts weren't the greatest. Or, you know, you could sing Amazing Grace to the House of the Rising Sun, and, you know, things like that. Which in or some ways, actually, that would actually, yeah, of course, the Gilman's Island, yeah. But uh, the House of the Rising Sun makes sense in some ways, actually. But um, anyway, I, I, uh, I went off to, off the seminary, came back, and um, more of this stuff was starting to go on. And I found, especially, I would have these regular conversations when I first started doing RUF. Um, this would have been in the mid-90s. At Belmont, most of the students had grown up in church, okay? So we'd say they were church. It didn't mean they were Christian, but they had a Christian background. And we would regularly have this conversation over a cup of coffee where students would talk to me um, and say things like they weren't reading their Bible anymore since they'd come to campus. They were struggling with a lot of doubts. And since they were struggling with doubts, they were concluding that they must not be a Christian. And I was perplexed by that because I would say, well, have you read the Psalms? Because it seems like the things that you're expressing um, are regularly said by people of faith in the Bible. Um, even Mary, when she's told she's going to have a baby, says, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. So, you know, gullibility is not faith. Um, but people seem to have this idea that if I have any questions at all, I must not be a Christian. And as I began to explore that, try to figure out where does that come from? Because that's not from the Bible. I realized that a lot of that was coming from the psalms they were singing. Because the psalms that my students were singing, like all the time in all their Christian settings, were basically psalms saying, Jesus, I love you all the time, and I don't want anything else but you, and that's all I ever want to think about, all I ever want to do. And they weren't feeling that. And yet they felt like that's what real Christians feel. Therefore, I must not be a Christian. And I realized, like, if I'm going to pass for these students, we've got to find some better songs to sing. Because the songs they're singing are undermining what I'm trying to teach them about the Christian life and about what the normal Christian life feels like. And that's when I began to kind of, you know, search around for some other songs. And um, I, I, I guess really, in a lot of ways, what I was looking for were two things. Songs that were more honest about struggle and songs that were more explicit about the gospel. And, and I'll tell you, you know, again, you know, if whenever I mention that study that I was part of, people are like, well, what about this song? I know there's exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, the cross is never unpacked in modern worship songs. It's talked about, it's referenced, but it's never unpacked. You never get something like, when I survey the wondrous cross, and you never get anything, let us wonder, just, you know, um, grace and justice, joy and point to mercy store. You never get those kind of things. Um, really unpacking what the cross is about. It's just reference to. So I needed songs that were more explicit about the gospel because I really do believe it's the gospel that changes us. And yet um, we were singing songs that were all about how it's my feelings that change me. And, um, and what I want to do is the most important thing. And the subtext was, if I really, really, really want you, Lord, then maybe you'll smile at me. And that was a really, that was a really tragic message. Martin Luther said one time that bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. And I had a lot of students with some bad theology that got from some songs that they were singing. Now, some of the songs fit in 
to a context where the gospel is being sung about, you can put some of those other songs in there as well. But a constant diet of only songs about how you feel and telling about how you feel forms you in a certain way. And uh, so I'm going I'm to make basically three points to the songs that we talked about to, to this morning. One is that worship is formative, like it or not. It's always shaping and molding your idea of the Christian life, of who God is, what it means to be a Christian, what it feels like to be a Christian. And that's not just for people who are trying to figure out Christianity and might stumble into one of our meetings or be invited into one of our meetings. They're going to take a lot of their understanding of what Christianity is from what goes on in the worship and the songs that we sing. But it's also formative for Christians who are struggling there sometimes, sitting there thinking, I'm not sure I really feel that right now. And I feel like I must be the only one because everybody else has got their eyes closed, their hands in the air, and they're singing this stuff. Um, so that's one thing I want to talk about today. Worship is formative, like it or not. And if that's true, we need to pay attention to what we're doing in worship. Um, the second is we need songs that are honest about the struggle. And the third idea is that we need songs that are explicit about the gospel. That don't just make a fleeting reference to it, but really unpack it. Um, because I really do think that, you know, the preacher's job... Jack Packer, great Christian theologian, said one time, the preacher's job is to display Christ, not just to tell you about him. And uh, I think the song should do the same thing. And again, if the goal is for our eyes to be opened, that we would see Jesus as more beautiful and believable, well, what kind of songs help us do that? And I don't think hymns are the only ones that do it. As a matter of fact, one of the things that has been exciting to me, so we put out that first indelible grace record. We started doing some of these songs in our group there at Belmont, and after about five years, we had a good number of them, and another RUF group put out a little CD, and I was like, well, we should put out a CD too, because I used to be a recording engineer, I live in Nashville, I got lots of friends, mm -hmm. got people like Sandra McCracken and Matthew Perry Jones, all these amazingly talented people in my group, maybe I should, you know, see if I can persuade them to sing some of these songs for the church. And, um, we, you know, we did, we did this, um, you know, this, this record, and, and people just started resonating with it in a way that we were totally surprised. Like we put 17 songs on this record thinking this is our one shot. And then people just started being like, oh, this is like bridging a gap between the worship wars. You know, where you're like, gotta either have modern music or have hymns. And I was at a church where we, we weren't going back to traditional music, like the church that I was at. Like we had already sold our soul to modern worship, but in doing that, we'd lost a lot of the content yeah. and a lot of the connection past. And I found a sign in an antique store once that I felt like expressed where my students were at. It said that my, um, my grandmother saved it, my mother threw it away, and now I'm buying it back. And I felt like that's where we were at with church music. In a lot of ways, the baby members had said, we don't need all that tradition, all that stuff. And yet my students were like, I want to know what made my grandmother cry when we sang the last verse of that hymn at church. What was it about that? Tell me about that. I want to understand about your faith and how it was formed and why these songs are so precious. Um, so I found uh, this old hymnal and I found this song, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. Yes. I remember when I, read through the, when, I, when I ran across that. Now, old hymnals, I actually brought one. Let me show you. Uh, these old hymnals before the Civil War don't have music in them. They only have words. And I'll even pass this around if you want to see it. So this is Charles Spurgeon's hymnal. Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher. The thousand hymn texts in here, but as you can see, there's no music. And what they would do is they would just have a handful of tunes 
And they, they had a tune that would go with Amazing Grace. If you have a tune that goes with Amazing Grace, come that fountain, rock of ages, three tunes, you can sing 90% of the hymnal. Because those three meters take up most of the gaps in English hymnal. And it's a pretty clever system. Um, but eventually we decided, you know, okay, we can, we can sing some of these texts to like Amazing Grace or to come that fountain. But what if somebody, what if one of my students wants to write a new tune? So I would like sometimes zero off, you know, a text and be like, hey, let's sing it to Amazing Grace today. But if one of you writes a tune, we'll try it next week. One of the great things about college ministry is you can experiment like that. If you were like the worship director at a big church, like you couldn't get away with that. Um, which is why, you know, it's another reason campus ministry benefits the whole church, actually. So I'll let y'all hear that. I'll let y'all see that if you want. But I remember going through this old book, and it just I just saw that title, and it just stopped me in my tracks. I thought, dear refuge of my weary soul. My gosh, can you imagine a song on Christian radio that says that? Like, there's this billboard for this big Christian radio station, if you drive to Nashville, Memphis, you see it. And uh, the tagline of what the radio station is about, safe for the whole family. I thought, really? Like that's the point of Christian art? To be safe for the whole family. Um, you're never gonna have people that are willing to go give their life for Jesus uh, if they're only singing songs that are safe for the whole family. Um, and so this song, Dear Refuge in My Rear Soul, I thought, I, can ima I can't imagine singing a song or somebody writing a song like that. Are you allowed to even say that in church? Are you allowed to admit that? That you have a weary soul? And as you go through, we're going to sing it now, but let me just point out some of the words to you. So Anne Steele wrote this. Anne Steele, I didn't know anything about her. I've since discovered a lot about her. She was a remarkable lady, um, English Baptist lady, lived back in the 1700s, and um, had a lot of health problems, ended up never marrying. She's very much like a character in a Jane Austen novel, if you guys like Jane Austen novels. Her, fa her family was pretty wealthy. Her dad was the pastor of the Baptist church, but he was also a timber merchant and, um, and quite wealthy. And her stepmom sent her and her sister to really nice schools, so she was well trained. And she really, you know, several pastors proposed to her, and her dad was a pastor. She knew what a pastor's life and a pastor's wife's life was like, and she decided that she would rather write poems. And, <laughs> and, so, um, and so she did. And um, eventually, it was pretty bold for a woman in the 18th century among the English Baptists to, for a woman to write worship hymns. So she actually published these hymns originally under a pen name, Theodosia. And um, they really resonated with people. Um, at one point, her hymn, she is the most prolific Baptist hymn writer. I mean, she's written more hymns than, that have gotten into use in churches than any other hymn writer. And yet her hymns have almost completely dropped out of use in churches here in the 20th century. Because we've kind of been through some theological kind of moods where we don't like to sing about sorrow and about suffering. We like to pretend that if you come to Jesus, all your problems will be fixed and you won't be sad anymore. That's the kind of testimonies we like to give. We like to have songs that are like that too. So her hymns have dropped out of use. But when I read this one, I thought, this is exactly what my students are feeling. And they need to know that this English Baptist lady who lived 300 years ago felt the same thing. So she starts out, Dear refuge of my weary soul. And this is typical for Anne Steele. She'll start with a, a direct address to God and it's usually some creative name. It's a, certainly a biblical idea, but it's not a biblical phrase. There's nowhere in the Bible where God is called the refuge of the weary soul in, the, in that exact way. But it's certainly true. So, dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. I love that she has the honesty to say fainting hope. She's barely hanging on here, right? So she says, to thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. That's good and orthodox, right? But look what she says next. But oh, when gloomy doubts 
prevail. That's a very strong word. If you've ever read Psalm 73, it's very much like Psalm 73. Yeah. Surely God is good to Israel, but let me tell you how I almost slipped. Right? That's what she's saying. You know, I believe this. I know this is true. But there are times when gloomy doubts don't just nip at my heels, but they prevail. They overwhelm me. There are times when I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. She suffered with panic attacks. She writes a lot of hymns about being up in the middle of the night with these panic attacks and trying to find comfort um, in God. She says, Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. And then she does a little gospel argument with her soul. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face? And shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? And then she starts to get a little more encouragement. She starts to build her confidence as she wrestles with God here. No, still, the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows in. Have you ever had sorrows that you couldn't even articulate? All you could do is breathe them in the Lord's direction. My mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Um, she gets back to a place of confidence, but it's a, it's a humble, sober place. It's not a triumphalistic place like, hey, I'm a Christian and this is easy. And man, I tell you, I think we need to sing songs like this. So let's sing this one. Can yeah. You, can you explain to them what the mercy seat is? Um, yes. The, the mercy seat is the place where they would offer the uh, blood and the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement one day. So, and then by the metaphor, the, the way that Hebrews picks up on the idea is there's a true mercy seat in heaven that the temple and the tabernacle were a picture of the true uh, heavenly temple where Jesus offered his blood and therefore we get access into the true holy of holies. Right? So it's that idea. Yeah, but it's, a, it's you know, Hebrews is really great, you know, if we had more time to talk about worship. There's a whole theology of access that is so important in the idea of worship. Worship isn't just things you do or perform. It's getting access into the very holy of holies. And um, Jesus opens that new and living way. He doesn't just cleanse us. He also welcomes us in and brings us in. Um, but we didn't have time to talk about all that. But that's good. Thank you. So um, I don't think you need to stand for this one. This is not really a standing song. But we do have someone that going to sing it for us. Because you really don't want to hear me sing you're going to have to hear me sing a little bit of it. Right. So, now it's interesting. If any there are musicians here, I'll tell you this little tip. I think that um, the best way to take a hymn text and turn it in and come up with a new tune for it is to speak the words out loud a lot and find the cadence and the rhythm um, to where it feels natural to speak them. And then go from that without an instrument in your hand and try to turn that into a tune. And those tunes tend to be more singable. Um, if you start playing guitar, if I played the guitar first, it would have been Dear refuge of my weary soul, it would have been real sing-songy. But because it's, it, it just has this pause, it's actually music with a 2-4 bar inserted in the middle, which kind of throws off the rhythm, but it feels like after Dear refuge of my weary soul, like you have to, you have, to have a breath. You don't just rush past the line like that. Um, so I, I think that's pretty interesting. I didn't do that intentionally, but I think when you read the words out loud, it sort of
causes you to go a certain direction in the kind of tune you come up with. So if anybody ever wants to try writing a new hymn tune, um, that's my that's my, my biggest tip. Mm -hmm. She'll sing the first verse and then you guys come in.
songs, honest songs, and um, taking seriously that worship is for you is important. Um, the next one we're going to sing, Jesus on my cross are taken. Do y'all sing that one? Do y'all know that one? Um, Henry Light, who wrote this, I always find this uh, interesting story. He, uh, his uh, dad was kind of a wretched guy. And um, Henry and his brother, when they were yeah, 13, 14, um, their parents divorced, which was pretty unusual in Victorian England. And um, his dad remarried. Don't really know what happened to the mom. She disappears from the scene. The dad remarried. And when the dad remarried, he sent Henry and his brother off to boarding school. And from then on, he would write letters to his own son. Henry's dad would sign them, not your father, but your uncle. So in other words, he basically told Henry, you're not my son anymore. And, um, and yet what's fascinating, and I know probably people that can resonate with that story in this room, unfortunately. Um, what's interesting is the father image in almost all of his hymns is still a warm and comforting one. The idea of God as a father. And I always like to point that out because if you wonder whether that metaphor, that image is ruined forever by your own earthly father, your experience of your own parents, there's something about Henry Light's testimony through his hymns that I think says it's possible for God to bring healing even to that. Because he didn't have to write lines about the Father. He could have written about all kinds of other things. But when we get this, um, you know, this, last, this fifth verse that says, think what spirit dwells within thee, think what Father's smiles are by. Or he's got some other hymns you might know, like Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, where he has this line, Father-like, he tends and spares us well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hand he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Like, and that's just remarkable to me that a guy with that kind of father wrote those kind of lines. But one of the other things that, that I'd like to point out about this hymn, this is one of those hymns that you sing it and part of you may like gag a little singing it. Because this is some strong stuff. This is a great example of a hymn that models the way a mature Christian deals with struggle and suffering. But it may not be where we're at right now. I find, I tell people, sometimes you have to sing this hymn, and one part of you sings it, and the other part of you says, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And so hymns actually can, can help us even learn and even try on words. Like, you got to just now try on Aunt Steele's story by singing Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul for like three or four minutes. We got to sit in her story and try on those words and find that they helped us maybe even say things that we didn't even know we felt. Calvin says that about the Psalms, that, the, uh, that there's every human emotion contained in the Psalms. And sometimes you don't even know you're feeling it until you sing them. And Dan Allen, the great Christian counselor, said one time that we'd have a whole lot less need of Christian counseling if we sang more Psalms. I'm not against Christian counseling at all, but I think we need to sing more Psalms. Um, and I think hymns like this are very much Psalm-like in the way they tell a story that kind of unfolds, and they take you on a journey um, as you wrestle with things. And um, this, this is one of those hymns. There's another line I think is really helpful for college students. Um, is it talks in verse five about sin and soul that know thy full salvation, rise over sin and fear and care, that means anxiousness, joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Joy to find in every station. That means there's some joy to find in whatever station of life, whatever season of life you find yourself in. I think a lot of times people look at college as the preparation time to serve God rather than the time to serve God. 
And then um, the, the next slide, something still to do or bear. I think Americans love to think about what we can do for God, you know, and don't often think about what we can bear for God. But one of the ways that we glorify God is by bearing things for the sake of the kingdom. So this, I think that's, the, even those ideas, see, again, I don't think anybody in the 20th century, 21st century would write a song like this. And when we recorded the song, it's seven minutes long, okay? And um, I've been enough in the Christian music industry to know that you don't try to, you know, put out seven-minute songs. Like, they don't play those on the radio or whatnot. But for the longest time, this was the most downloaded and double Gray song on iTunes. There's something about this seven-minute song, and we might sing it a little faster than that, we'll see, um, that, uh, that I think, it, again, it's really formative. Again, back to that on the reading of old books. Listen, Henry Light may be wrong about how we look about suffering, think about suffering, but we, in our day and age, tend to think suffering is just something to get past as quick as possible. And we rarely ask, what is God doing in the midst of this? How can I come to know God more deeply, more richly in the midst of this? We don't ever think about that. And unless you sing a song like this, or unless you talk to Christians maybe from another culture, another place where suffering is more um, a regular part of their experience, you probably won't think differently than sort of modern American people think. This at least opens your eyes that there are Christians who think very differently about suffering than you do. They might be wrong, but you might be wrong. But you're never going to even raise the question if you don't sing songs that think about things very differently than you. So let's, uh, let's end this one. This is worth standing, I think. <laughs> Jesus, I'd like
And I love the honesty. You know, unveil thy beauties and then sometimes, you know, sin and sorrow rise in between me and the sight I have of your love. And, um, I need you. Um, too soon the pleasing same is clouded over with pain. My gloomy fears rise dark between us. Can you really? Sure, I don't know about you. I've been doing cancer ministry for 20 years. I'd be curious what I bet David would say maybe the same thing. But I find anxiety disorders are so much more prevalent among students now than they were. And um, it seems to be getting worse. I think it's in the culture, it's in the air. Um, and uh, so I find her hymns really helpful because she's somebody that really struggled with anxiety and panic and all those sorts of things. Um, so that's that's the idea. We need honest songs. We need songs that remind us that worship is formative. We need to see Jesus more beautiful and believable. And then we need to sing songs that are explicit about the gospel. And um, so we're going to sing the Can It Be. Now, um, yes. this, uh, this one is a great one. You know, John and Charles Wesley, I'll, I'll tell you the story about Charles Wesley getting converted. Because it's a, it's a great story. Um, you know, John and Charles um, came over to America to be missionaries to Georgia. Um, John was ordained as a as a uh, Anglican priest at this point. Charles was not. Um, he came over to be the secretary to General Orderthorpe um, and the Georgia kind of penal colony they had down there. And um, you know, they had they, they ran into this hurricane off the coast of Georgia, and um, all the sailors are freaking out. Everybody's freaking out except this group of German Moravians. Um, every day at the appointed hour, the Moravians, these German Moravians. Uh, Christian group who love singing, um, they would come up onto the deck and sing their hymns in German. John actually learned, began to learn German so he could figure out what was it about these people that even in the midst of this hurricane came up on top of the ship while all the hardened sailors are freaking out and puking their guts out and here these guys come at the appointed hour to sing their hymns. And he's like, I've got to figure out what they have, okay? So he starts trying to hang out with them and learn about them. The Moravians were people that, you know, would literally get themselves sold into slavery so that they could um, minister to the slaves. Um, all kinds of just amazing stories about the Moravians. They were those followers of John Huss, who had reintroduced singing, and then after Huss was burned, they had to go hide in the, in the mountains. And they were still around, now 300 years later, this group. The singing is very important to them. Hymns are very important to them. And um, eventually, Wesley and Charles and John ended up going back to England. Um, it's a kind of crazy story, but I'll bore you with it. Um, and they were over there, and they were hanging out, still trying to learn from these Moravians. Now, the Moravians loved Martin Luther, and they really loved the gospel um, power that they had in Martin Luther. So one of the things that these guys were doing is they would basically gather in a room, maybe about 10 or 15 people, and they would read Martin Luther out loud to each other, hoping to catch some spark of, like, what was it that that Luther got about the gospel that we don't get. And um, actually, John was converted um, by reading the introduction to Luther's commentary on Romans, and Charles was converted by them reading out loud Luther's commentary on Galatians. And um, that's what they're doing. I, I don't know if you've ever done that, sat around and read good Christian, you know, classic books to each other out loud, but it worked for the Wesleys, and it started a, a worldwide revival and uh, transformed the world in so many ways. A lot of uh, historians think that England would have had a similar revolution to the French Revolution if it hadn't been for the Methodist revival. And that was after they were doing all kinds of Christian work. Yeah, they were doing all kinds of Christian work. Yeah, they were all kinds of stuff. Yeah. They weren't converted. They weren't converted, no. Um, somebody told John Wesley, preach faith until you find it. And um, so that's what he started doing. Well, so Charles, right before his conversion, he 
um, took ill, and it looked like he might die. He was in his sickbed, and this Moravian guy, Peter Bowler, came to visit Charles. And Peter Bowler asked Charles as he was laying in his sickbed, said, do you hope to be saved if you should die? And Charles said, why, yes, I do. And Peter Bowler said, upon what basis? And Charles said, well, upon my good endeavors, of course. My best efforts. And Peter Bowler just looked at him and shook his head, kind of like he's doing it, and just walked out. And Charles wrote in his journal, what? What? Would he separate me from my good endeavors? What else do I have? And it was soon thereafter that he recovered and was at this meeting hearing about the alien righteousness that Martin Luther talks about in that intro to Galatians. If you've never read the intro to Martin Luther's Galatians and you want to understand what is it about the gospel that's so powerful, it, he talks about this alien righteousness. That you have the righteousness of another given to you that's credited to your account and it changes everything. And this hymn came soon after um, his conversion, about a year after his conversion when he wrote this hymn. And I love this line, um, uh, where is it? No condemnation, verse four, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Alive in him, your living head, that means he's your representative. Uh, maybe an easy way to think of it is what Jesus gets, you get. So when he died, if you're in union with him, if you're united to him by faith, you died with him. And if he's risen, you're risen with him. And if he's righteous, you're righteous in him. And here's the good news. He died, he's resurrected, and he's righteous. And therefore, if you're in him, you're all those things. And uh, this is a great hymn. There's also an interesting thing here. I heard Tim Keller say one time that one of the ways he comes up with some pretty interesting insights in biblical stories when he's preaching them, he has this way of preaching where you're like, oh, I never would have seen that. But after he pointed it out, I was like, oh, yeah, that's there. He said that one of the things he likes to do in his meditation on Scripture is enter into a Bible story and imagine himself as every character in the story and then see how things look from that perspective as part of his regular meditation on Scripture. I think it's actually a pretty good idea, and I think Charles Wesley does it. Because this is a story about, you know, the jail, you know, when Peter, you know, was in the jail and then the earthquake and the light breaks in. But look at what Wesley does. He actually puts us inside the story, which is a way of just sort of kind of a vivid, it's somewhat imaginative, um, but I think it's very helpful as a way even to think about how to connect with the scripture. So that's what he does here. All right, so you know this one maybe? You guys sing this one? The other stand, the other guys stand for this one. And can it be? I get a lot of letters about us changing the tune on this one, but if you go back to that, you know, say the text out loud for what the rhythms, you would never say, and can't maybe that ah, it's really okay. You would never talk like that. Um, you might say, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Like it just seems to have a little more urgency. So I don't know. Um, I am not usually into rewriting tunes if we have perfectly good tunes, but I tend to think that the original tune for this actually isn't that great of marriage. So, but that's of course the big.
of a Methodist preacher, and this was the caricature of a Methodist preacher, and I think you could do worse um, with this caricature. The, the, the way they pictured the Methodist preacher is standing in the cart with somebody who was condemned to be hung, because they would basically, you know, put the noose on and have him on the cart, and then they'd drive off the cart, and the guy would hang. Um, the, the Methodist preacher there with the hymn book and the Bible is there preaching the gospel to the person about to be condemned. The Wesleys would regularly get themselves locked into Newgate Prison. Um, to minister to people on death row. And in those days, there was no minimal age for death. Punishable offenses. 11, 12 years old, still a loaf of bread, you would run a hang. And the Wesleys, when he talks about my change fell off, that's not just sort of a cool abstract image. He regularly had himself fettered to people condemned to die. And preached the gospel there. And we could do better, I think, or we could do worse than to have, when people think about RUF or they think about your, your church, what do they think about you? Oh, those are the people that identify with people 
condemned to death, and they preach the gospel, and they sing hymns. That's what they were known for. John Wesley was asked one time how the Methodist movement spread so rapidly, and he said simply, our people die well. What he meant is they died in assurance of faith. And in a day when people died at home with all their family around, not, you know, in hospitals, kind of tucked away, like, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm against that, but in those days, that wasn't how people died. They died at home with everybody around, and people died well. And people wanted to know, what was this gospel that allowed them to die well? Well, let's jump to the next one, upon a life. Can you do that one? So for the longest time, I love Charles Spurgeon. He's a great preacher. If you've never read any books by Charles Spurgeon, highly commend him. You can even just Google Spurgeon sermons and read a Spurgeon sermon. I think it would be good for your for your heart and soul. Um, if you like, ever are looking for like a devotional book, you know that I think sometimes it's good to like warm up maybe with a devotional book even before you try to read the Bible in the morning. Sometimes and Charles Spurgeon put out a thing called Morning by Morning, and then another one called Evening by Evening. Those are really good. You can get an app. For it, I think it's almost it's probably free, right? Or if not, it's like a buck or two. And every day when you open up your phone, you can have kind of a little a couple paragraphs in the scripture. Anyway, love Spurgeon. And but Spurgeon loved to quote people, and sometimes he gets credit for the quote even when he's quoting somebody else. Um, and this is a good example of that because I for the longest time I love this little line that people said, you know, what's the gospel? Kevin, what is the gospel? I'd say, Well, I think Spurgeon summarized it well when he said, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. I stake my whole eternity. This idea of substitution, right? Man substitutes himself for God in sin. And in the gospel, God substitutes himself for man. And our hope is upon a death we didn't die and upon a life we didn't live. You know, um, righteousness is not the same thing as forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is when you're sort of brought back to zero. But God said, Jesus said, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I don't care how many times you get brought back to zero and have a fresh opportunity to try again, you're never going to achieve that. But Jesus did. Jesus did achieve that. And when you put your trust in him and you're united to him by faith, you get that. Right? So it's true. That's the heart of the gospel. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I staked my whole eternity. And I pray that that's true for you. Well, I pray that you want that to be true and that you'll plead with God to give you faith to believe that, to put your hope there. Um, I later found out that that actually was a quote from a hymn by Horatius Bonar. And so, of course, I was like, well, we got to sing this one. Um, now, this one has a little bit of a range to it, um, but we think this is a, a pretty good key, not too high for the girls. And um, I usually find it's better to pitch the songs well for the girls because the guys tend to not sing as loud anyway, so why don't we get the sisters to help us as much as possible. Um, let's stand up and do this.
second verse is an interesting idea that maybe you hadn't heard before. Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, another's tears, another's grief, on these I rest and these alone. I think it's an interesting idea to think that you could seek to be justified by your sorrow. But I do think it's, it's worth pondering. Um, sometimes you can get stuck in that and feel like I deserve God's grace because I've suffered. And um, you need to understand that the only thing that qualifies you for grace is Jesus and his work. Um, Charles Spurgeon, you know, quote him again, put it this way, he said, um, do not make your wounds a rival for the wounds of Christ. It's by his stripes that we're healed. And um, I know that sounds like strong medicine. Doesn't mean that he doesn't grieve with us. But there can be a sense in which God has no right to demand anything of me because of what I've suffered. And you can get stuck in that in sort of a, a way of kind of self-righteousness that can be really dark. And um, I, I, I think that's one of the reasons I love this hymn is it sort of brings out an idea that maybe you've never thought about before. Maybe you've got a friend that you're trying to encourage and um, you might suspect that. You might even think that maybe that, some of that's going on and maybe you need to pray that they'd be set free from that or you'd be set free from that. Um, I don't know how much time we got. We want to close with Jordan Stormy Banks. Yeah, why don't we have a few minutes for questions? Yeah. And then uh, we're going to close with on Jordan Stormy Banks. So, anybody got thoughts, questions, feedback? Anything that we've talked about this whole, this whole week? Yes? You said something, I think it was in your yesterday's sermon, about not making the singing part of our worship service. A, uh, I can't remember your exact words. It's kind of like a, a warm-up for the sermon mm. and not making the worship the, or the singing the only no, part. Could you maybe elaborate on that yes. more? How to like yeah. that balance? I think we, we're in a day and age where people just kind of colloquially will say worship and refer to the singing. So they'll talk about, oh, that church has great worship. And they, what they usually mean is just the singing. So I, I want to caution us against equating worship with singing because worship is more than that. And as I told you in the New Testament, Rarely is the word worship referred to gathering together with Christians and praising God together. It usually refers to how we live all of life. Um, there is still a place in thinking about what we do gathered together for a, a corporate time of worship or your personal time of worship and your you know, devotional time, whatever. Um, but we don't want to say that that's equated with worship. Worship's more than that, bigger than that. Um, I also think, though, particularly in the Presbyterian tradition, Sometimes we think of the sermon as the main thing, and the other elements as just kind of warm-ups for that. And um, I think that that could maybe be a problem, too, because it seems to me, biblically, singing is advocated as a way to get the word to dwell in you richly. I'm not opposed to preaching. I am a preacher. I spend most of my time preaching, um, rarely singing, and that's good. I tell people... Told a lot of the Delaware Grace records because I don't sing on them. Uh, <laughs> I have other people that sing. Um, but I do think, I, I guess what I'm arguing for is a little more holistic approach. And as I survey church history, I see that that holistic approach is kind of our heritage um, and something that I think those job descriptions have sort of gotten split in some ways in the modern church. And I don't think that's the most helpful thing. Um, so that, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, the, yeah, the dialogue worship, and even, yeah, the sacraments. Yeah, you know, the sacraments, reading the scripture, all the praying and preaching, it's all about getting to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. And you need all those things. Now, in an RUF meeting, we don't do the sacraments. 
So we have prayers, we have the songs, we have scripture reading, and we have the sermons. And that's why, you know, I'm like, you need to make the most of the songs, especially in that context where you don't have the sacraments. Uh, I, I don't want to think of the songs just as sort of like warming people up. I think that in the songs, you actually can have your eyes open to see Jesus more beautiful and believable. Uh, not because the songs are equal to scripture, but because they mediate scriptural ideas and images. Just like when you encourage somebody with a scriptural idea, you know. Yeah, that's all I want to say. Yeah. Um, what are some significant resources that, or, or influences? You're talking about old hymn books. Yeah. And just if, if someone was interested in crafting new hymns, new songs, yeah. Where where would you encourage those folks to go to for mm -hmm. wells or mines? Or yes. Well, I can give a limited answer, but then I can also maybe point you to some to some stuff. So I did. Um, there's a, 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 a organization called Doxology and Theology. A guy named Matt Doswell, and he's got a friend Matt Papa that has written some. Um, you know that Behold the Wonders Mystery. Do you know that song? No. Um, what's cool, like when I when we started when we did the first Double Grace record like 20 years ago, came out in 2000, so not quite 20 years now. But when we started doing that, there wasn't very much modern worship that was, like I say, honest about struggle or explicit about the gospel. There just weren't many modern songs that were doing either one of those things. But there are a lot more now, and um, a lot of those folks would look at RUF and say that we were an influence to them to get to them to start to think about worship songs that had more substance to them. And now there's a lot of people, particularly like the Acts 29 movement, a lot of Reformed Baptists, folks that are writing original songs. I mean, certainly you've got Keith and Chris and Getty, you know, within Christ Alone, and they've, they've got, you know, um, some great stuff. And I, I think the world of those guys, they live in Nashville now, so obviously friends with those guys now. But, um, but there's a whole lot more. And I went to a conference last year up at Louisville at a Southern Seminary, and there were probably four or 500 men and women, mostly under 30, with lots of tats, who were doing all kinds of really robust worship of new songs that they'd written that were full of the gospel. Um, and so I feel like the Lord is stirring up a lot of this stuff. And um, there is a, a, a new website that's gonna come out called the Retune Hymnal, that's gonna take kind of the, all the Indelible Grace, RUF stuff, as well as different organizations like Sovereign Grace and Cardiphonia, and there's just all this stuff. So I, I did a, a lecture once at the Hymn Society's meeting, and a friend of mine who works at Hope College now, he had cataloged over a thousand retuned hymns since the first Adele Grace record came out. So that's what's cool. See, in RUF, we love to talk about teach, demonstrate, observe, evaluate, encourage. That's the discipling process. So, you know, that first Adele Grace record, we had 17 songs in there, I wrote 10 of them. The next records, I wrote like two or three. Because the students now picked up on the idea and they were doing it and making it their own. And now somebody like Sandra McCracken not only has done retune hymns, she's written songs, you know, from scratch, and she's written songs. She has this new songs project. And so it's just really cool the way to see the way that this has taken root and spread all over the place. Um, so so that's great. And I've got um, that doxology and theology. If you just Google doxology and theology, and you can find the talk that I gave a year ago on basically how to rewrite how to act, write a new tune. And my first point was, where do you find a text? And the second point is, you know, what makes a good text? How do you go about retuning? And then I have a, a document, which I could give to you, um, on sources to find texts. Because the cool thing about Google Book Search, like that Spurgeon hymn book, you can get that, 
right, for about 10 or 15 bucks. Um, and that's awesome. I would give that to my songwriters anyway, just for them to read devotionally. And if they resonated with the text and wanted to put it to music, that was a good thing. Because I knew as a pastor, if you're going to put a text to new music, you're going to have to really inhabit that text. And even if the song isn't great, that was good for their soul. So that was sort of my little sneaky pastoral thing that I was doing, especially with my creative types that really you know, would resonate with some of that. Um, and then they were actually being discipled by these dead people in how to write songs. <laughs> so that's good, you know? Well, I like that. Um, but there's so many, like Google Book Search, you can just look up Spurgeon's hymn book and you can download it as a free PDF. Like if you like Henry Light's hymns, we sang Jesus on a cross, yeah, I love that hymn, I wonder what other hymns he's written. Well, he wrote 200 other hymns. And some of them are great. And you can do Henry Light's works as a PDF and download it for Google Book Search for free. So it's a great time. You can also go to eBay and get cool leather-bound hymn books in the 19th century, usually for under 40 or 50 bucks. And that's really cool. The first Presbyterian hymn book authorized by the church to use was in 1843, and you can find copies of that on eBay. Nice leather-bound, cool copies for less than 50 bucks if you search around. So I like to give those out to my students when I do their wedding. Uh, so there's lots of good stuff, and um, you won't remember any of that, so I'll send that document to Chris to spread to the, to the leaders. All right, good. Any others? Well, the first thing I should ask, how do you discern messages that you're getting? Kind of, so you're back kind of that first talk about how all of life is liturgical and it's portraying a beautiful life for us. Yeah, I think of um, culture, particularly popular culture, but all culture is a map of reality. And in places it corresponds to reality and other places it diverges. But every piece of culture is taking something that God made and everything that God made is stamped with meaning. That's why Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare his praise. Uh, the creation is preaching about who God is and what he's like. And yet we try to take it and make it say something else. That's part of what idolatry does. And um, culture is a way of us taking the stuff that God has made and it's like saying something with it. And either we're amplifying that God you know, deserves all the glory or we're trying to make it say something else. So, you know, pop culture and culture, like even messages you get on social media, um, I mean, I think, like, when I think about, you know, like, you know, pictures, and people are always like, oh, everybody only presents the, the good side of themselves in their pictures on Facebook or whatnot. Um, and you could just see that as a negative, right? And then as a negative to comparison. But you could also say, well, at least people are, like, understanding that there's beauty to be found in all kinds of places where you might not have noticed it before. Because I think that's a more redemptive theme that I see going on. So I like to think about what can you commend and what do you think um, is less than commendable. But to do that, you have to first start with analyzing what is it saying. And, and thinking about what message, what good life, what beautiful life is being portrayed here. And then you kind of have to go back to your Bible and say, okay, where does that correspond with what God says and where does it diverge? For instance, I think some of the best critiques of kind of arbitrary ideas of beauty have come not from the church, but have come from people outside the church. And if you ever read Naomi Wilkes, The Beauty Myth, and other things like that. And I wish that Christians had been more attuned to that. We tend to think worldliness is like 
you know, drinking and smoking and chewing and dancing, at least we have it in the past, and not thinking that, you know, worldliness is our ideas of beauty, and thinking that, you know, these kind of arbitrary ideas of beauty are you know, what really drives the world. And um, there's a lot of non-Christians that have heard that even better than maybe some people in the church. So I, I think you should, you know, there, there is a, um, there's a, a website called Ransom Fellowship. Um, that Dennis Hack does this, and, and he's got some great um, articles and even some kind of little lessons on cultural discernment. Uh, we had a seminary professor, Dr. Yarbrough, he used to pay his kids a quarter for every lie that they spotted uh, on TV and advertisements. And I do think you can really train yourself, but I also think train yourself to see what's good here. What They might be seeing something that we're not seeing. So I, 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 I would caution you in saying, well, because we're Christian, we're right about everything, because they're not, they're wrong. Sometimes non-Christians hear things um, that the creation is saying that the Christians are kind of blocking out. So I know that's, maybe that's just a, a start, but I think that can be helpful. One more? One more question. Yeah. You've talked about many psalms or, or songs that have been meaningful to you. Are there maybe two or three that that just have been life changing for you? Um, I think "Dear Refuge." I always like that. It's not the best group singing song, but it's one of my absolute favorite hymn texts. I think "Discovering Anne Steele" in her hymns has, has been really uh, transformative for me. Um, I also I really like. I really love Let Us Love and Sing Wonder. I think it's one of the greatest hymns ever written. Um, the idea that justice smiles, that God isn't just sort of like, oh, I wish I'd never forgiven these people because they've really frustrated me all the time. But that because of what Jesus did, justice smiles and asks no more. Um, I, I love that idea. I need to hear that regularly. I think mine will be different than yours. Because remember what I, went, what I was saying about there are particular aspects of what God has done and who he is that I tend to forget. And those things are connected to my story and to my idols. And so you've got to find the songs, you know, that are that way for you. Um, and I think, you know, A.W. Tozer, I remember in college reading a little thing that this guy, A.W. Tozer, said, said next to the Bible, the best devotional book is a good hymn book. And it took me like 10 years to realize that I think he's right. Um, so I encourage you to have a hymn book. I think every Christian should. Um, or at least you can go to, you know, some hymn books online and um, make that a regular part of your devotional. Reading. So those are those are some of my favorites, and then Henry Light, you know, Jesus on the Cross, is a, is a really good one. Yeah. Can, can I make one it? comment? Yeah. Um, actually, you, you said some of the songs will be different for me. Actually, Dear Refuge and Jesus on My Cross I've taken yeah. have sustained me for yeah. the last decade, and yeah. so I thank you for for yeah. allowing God to use you in that way right. and. Thanks bolster me and, and I would just turn around to you all and say hey you know if you're if you're just finding out these songs they really are a huge help in your Christian life I mean we've talked about it but experience, experientially they're the meat and potatoes of your Christian walk mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think uh, thank you I, I will tell you you know I put all of our records on Spotify which is usually a good thing because college students have access to Spotify and don't buy music anymore um, yeah, there's like nine or ten records, and there's actually a documentary film on YouTube you can watch for free. Um, 
10 years after the first record came out, we had the opportunity to play a concert at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, and we filmed that, and then we did some interviews with some of the students that were like you, and then 10 years later, got to reflect on what these hymns had meant to them. And I think that's really powerful. I, I think that's a, a great thing. Um, so we put that up on, on YouTube. It's called Roots and Wings, um, if you want to get into this more. And if you want to learn how to play some of this music, we have a thing called the Indelible Grace Hymn Book. Um, we've gotten some grants from a couple people over the years to be able to put all this music up. You can download it all for free. You can download the PowerPoints. You can download the PDFs, the chord charts, um, lead sheets with the melodies if you want that, and even piano music if you need to get all the notes written out. Piano music for a lot of the songs. Um, so you might find that stuff helpful. Uh, but, you know, really, in a lot of ways, we want to nurture a movement. You know, we don't want to be like, hey, just sing these songs. Like, I want, I get really excited when people say, okay, well, what's that going to look like in my community? Because my musical voice is very different, you know, than your musical voice in Nashville. I'm like, okay, awesome. Why don't you take up this idea and run with it and incarnate it in your context? Because I found after that first couple records, people were trying to duplicate the sound of our records. And I thought, I want the songs just to start with acoustic guitar and the vocal, and then you flesh it out with whoever God has brought into your worship community. And uh, I think we've thought about that more, especially as we've gotten some historic black um, colleges with our youth groups, and they're like, well, how do we be part of our UF and this tradition that is a big part, but yet add our voice and contribute, you know, the gifts from our community? And uh, that's been really exciting to me. And I've got a missionary down in, um, somewhere down in South America who translated like a hundred of the songs into Spanish. Got another guy who's translated a bunch of them into Chinese. And uh, I think it's great, but my ultimate hope is that people would then take that idea and run with it uh, in their own community. So. But I do think that the records are helpful just for meditating, you know, and getting the gospel in your heart. And I try to make the records in a way that you'll enjoy listening to them in your car. I try to mix the vocals a little softer than a lot of Christian records so that you can sing and feel like the music envelops you. Because that's what I hope you'll do, you know. Um, and that's what I like to do. And that's what I love about my kids. Whenever we're working on a record, they get to hear those songs all the time. And, you know, my, my little kids, now they're older now, but they were little. They could sing in Canopy when they were four or five. Sing all the words, and, um, and I think that's good. That's good for our soul. Let's close with uh, our George Story Banks. Y'all know this one? <laughs> you know, I have a letter from uh, the guy that wrote this hymn. Stand up, send it. See, a lot of people don't appreciate hymn writers. So I, I so one time I just got on eBay and found like. There's these, all these hymn writer autographs. They're not now, because I bought all the cheap ones. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, this guy like lived in the 1700s, and there was a letter for like 30 bucks. Um, he, it's like, hey, it's a letter by a Baptist preacher. I was like, it's not just a Baptist preacher, that's Samuel Stan. He wrote on George Story Banks. So, I, I don't know. I'm kind of a hymn nerd, I guess. Um, the Lord just keeps drawing me deeper and deeper into this. Uh, but I do think, you know, in our cynicism, um, we can, in some ways, I think that we've been, like you mentioned social media, one of the messages of our culture is you can buy your way to heaven on earth, right? You can buy your way to heaven on earth. And I think um, cynicism is almost self-defense against sort of those lies. But it's, it's, it's sort of an overreaction because then you begin to, to think that heaven doesn't exist at all. So it's good to sing songs about our hope. Um, it's not just that we sort of close our heart to the deceptive lies that promise heaven can be found here. We also need to open our hearts and whet our appetites for what's coming. So that's, that's why we like to sing this one.
that promise that has been secured by your death and your life, uniting us to yourself. We pray that that day that is coming for sure would drive the way we live this day, that you would drive out fear, that you would drive out boasting, that we would live for you and your kingdom, that you would be glorified and honored in all we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. So we're going to do small groups real quick, but before we do that, I want to just, um, you can have a seat for a second, uh, thank uh, Kevin and Wendy for spending Wendy's birthday yeah. here with us. Hey, it's more relaxing to hear. You guys have experienced you know, a rich feast, a rich feast of uh, gospel messages and just the hope of, of the songs and the hymns, and so it's been just a joy to have you here, be encouraged by all of this. And uh, one quick little story: some of you guys in my group know about my panic attacks, anxieties when I was in St. Louis, and uh, <clears throat> uh, doing an internship in City Fellowship, down everything. And Kevin was Kevin was a friend during that whole time. And, I distinctly remember, this is after the time where I came back to school to take one class with Jalen Bars. And in the midst of that class, after I'd come back to St. Louis from Maryland, it, it, I was just a dark night of the soul, doubt, anxiety, panic attacks. I distinctly remember, this is before cell phones, calling you probably 1 a.m. in the morning, I don't know what time it was, and uh, just feeling like, Kevin, I think I should leave. I, I, I don't see myself being in the ministry. I don't, I don't see you. Uh, and I just remember your encouragement to bow, to fight, and to stay. Stay in St. Louis, finish seminary, etc. But a lot of that was thinking about encouragement, the fellowship, uh, the connection with the gospel. And uh, you know, that's what you guys need to take back. You know, to your campuses. Friendship that battles, friendship that encourages, friendship that sings these songs together. So that you don't forget the gospel because it's so slick. So slippery. You've got to be singing these songs in your heart, in your life. And so I just want to thank you for that, brother, and just um, for being here uh, with us. And so um, the other thing is I want to pray for Anna Catherine. Anna Catherine, come on. Fantastic. So please uh, love on her and 
not just today, but as she goes um, away from us. And she's just been fantastic. And we, we celebrate you, Bill. We thanks for prayer for you. So, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for Anna Catherine and just for her service to these students, to me, to this ministry for the last two years, raising money, living in extreme poverty as a RUF intern. But Lord, thank you for her heart, uh, for you, for service, and uh, her love for you and these students in this ministry. And Lord, would you go with her? Would you be with her? Would your spirit uh, be mighty uh, on her as she goes into a new place uh, with unknowns and meets all these children and does a new job that she's never done before. But Lord, thank you for her faith stepping out, wanting to serve the poor, uh, wanting to serve those in need. And Lord, would you find, would you help her find quick fellowship, a church, friends, Lord, to sing these songs with, to, to praise. And so Lord, be with her, go with her. Uh, and we pray all this in Christ's name. So we're going to do, go, go to the campus, yeah, yes, it's your turn. It's my turn now. Uh, I just want to thank you guys, I think this has been a wonderful weekend, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to be uh, with you guys, but we need to thank you though, brother, we need to thank you. So this guy has been uh, a huge blessing to my family. Extended wise, you've ministered to people that I care about a great deal. We want to thank you for building this segment of RUF so that we could come and be together and inviting the church too, and so that we could be together as campuses and as churches and a better picture of the body. So I've been up here, I've told you rules, I've given you announcements. So now is there rule number 10 of please pay Chris? Um, now we're going to do rule number 11. Let's thank Chris for everything. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. At 12 o'clock, there's lunch. Name tags need to go back there. Um, so, but just take a few minutes. We basically just want to get in our campuses or church groups or whatever. If you came individually, just get with people that you feel most comfortable with right now. Um, we just want to hear how God has ministered to you this weekend. Maybe a couple points as, that have been uh, definitive, you know, for just a few minutes, you know, for maybe 15, 20 minutes. So um, maybe Marilyn group will just like pull chairs over there. And then uh, at 12 o'clock, it's lunch. Uh, maybe at like 10 of 12, uh, make sure you get all your stuff out of your room, clean up your room. Um, you, some people can help us tear down and take all the music PA system out of the sidewalk, that would be great too. So disperse.